This podcast episode was brought to you by the unwritten speeding rule on the Lodge, where 80 is the new 55. Welcome to the Lost Souls of Detroit podcast, where we talk souls and drink spirits. I'm Max, and please welcome my co-host, Jameson. Please tell us a little bit about what we're drinking today. Hey, Max. Happy to be back for a second episode of Lost Souls of Detroit. Today, we are drinking a whiskey from Journeyman Distillery, uh, which is located in Three Oaks, Michigan, which is southwest Michigan, pretty close to Chicago. I heard about this distillery uh, through a coworker who said Journeyman has some great whiskeys. We went to the local liquor store together earlier, and we asked about it, and this was the last bottle they had, the WR Whiskey. Uh, it's their clear whiskey. It's, yeah, it doesn't look like whiskey to it, me. It looks a lot like gin. It looks like a, the bottle mm-hmm. and the labeling looks a lot like gin, but it's not aged. Uh, it's not barrel aged, so it's clear. So we'll uh, we'll see this flavor profile we got awesome. going here. Let's, let's try uh, some out. Let's pour us some. Nice. I will say it smells quite strong. Do we see the ABV here on the bottle? It's ninety proof. Ninety proof. Okay, so typical whiskey. On the higher end. Whew. Smell that? Oh, that's... Good Lord. All right, let's try Cheers. It. Cheers. That's really good. I am pleasantly surprised. This is phenomenal. It is excessively mild for how strong it mm-hmm. smells. And the burn you get right away, you think you're going to get hit with something, and then it's like sweet. Not... I mean, obviously, it's not barrel-aged, so there's no oakiness but i i'm a big fan it I tastes like, like it. bananas it does kind of taste like bananas this is this is crazy okay so i wish the podcast had a sense of smell because when i smelled this i'm gonna say this now that i know i liked it when i smelled it i was like i feel like i'm about to just do a shooter of like the new amsterdam peach or something <laughs> yes it was like it was really really <laughs> strong back to college yeah i was like oh my gosh does anybody have a chaser <laughs> well very cool. I'm excited about this. But we ha- we do have a chaser. It's a podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, awesome. So, we're going to be drinking some of this whiskey while we are talking about none other than Kwame Kilpatrick. So, last week we spoke a little bit about Joseph Campo. He dates back hundreds of years. So, now we're going to talk about a more recent Detroit local, someone who we can consider a bad man, Kwame Kilpatrick. So what do you know about Kwame Kilpatrick to start, Jameson? Anything? Well, as a lot of Detroit residents and Metro Detroit residents, I do know about Kwame Kilpatrick, at least uh, enough to tell you that he was the mayor of Detroit, uh, known as the hip-hop mayor, a really young dude that had an extreme downfall based on a lot of allegations and has ended up spending the better part of the last decade in prison and as well as the foreseeable future. So that's about all I know about him. But I'm looking forward to hear hearing more of this uh, tragic story. Yep. So all of that is true so far. So I'm going to start from the early days. So Kwame Malik Kilpatrick, he was born on June 8th, 1970, to Bernard Kilpatrick and Ch- Carolyn Cheeks. First of all, it's an awesome last name, Cheeks. <laughs> so his mom was a pretty big player in the Michigan politics since Kwame was just a kid, too. So she has been in politics since about 1979, both being in the Michigan House of Representatives as well as the U.S. House, all the way until 2010. And interestingly, in 2010, she lost re-election to Hanson Clark, which ended her political career. So this probably had more to do with her son Kwame's infamy as both a liar and a thief than it did her actual competence. And NPR also says that she lost that election not because of her legislative record, but because of her name. 
and I'm not talking cheeks. So if you're not quite sure about what Kwame could have done to not only ruin his own, but his family's political career, keep listening. Oh, I will. So Kwame's dad, Bernard, also a former politician turned criminal, had been a part of Wayne County's politics since about the late 80s. And after his tenure there, he then started a consulting firm called Maestro Associates. Now, Jameson, remember that piece of information. All right, Max, I'm making a mental note. Maestro Associates? Maestro. All right, got it. So, let's fast forward a bit to the 1990s. So, at this point, young Kwame has done pretty well for himself. He had graduated from Cass Tech High. He got his bachelor's degree in poli-sci from Florida A&M. Go Rattlers! Yep, which coupled quite nicely with his JD from the Detroit College of Law. We know that better now as MSU College of Law. Yep, uh, as a Michigan State alum, I am very familiar with the law library. It's uh, quite co- quite close to Cedar Village. Cedar Village. <laughs> so, um, in 1998, he was elected to the Michigan House of Representatives, following right in Mama Cheek's footsteps. What a good boy. And so young, too. And handsome. And handsome. So he moved up in the ranks as a young black Michigan Democrat, and was actually the first black person to hold the position of the House Minority Leader. That is until he got the opportunity of a lifetime. So in 2001, he ran for mayor of Detroit and won, now becoming the youngest mayor that Detroit has ever had at the time, only 31 years old. So he was known for his fundraising, being a Detroit native, and he was truly excited about this next step in his career. Just destined for greatness, huh? Well, what's interesting to me about this so far already is that when we look at Kwame in hindsight, we see this guy who kind of was the image of... Even before all the problems, he was kind of the image of stepping away from the your your average politician, right? Like mm-hmm. the rebel figure, kind of. Which is funny because he really wasn't that at all. He was a lifelong politician who is the son of politicians. Exactly. So yes, so he had begun his he had begun his first term as mayor, and he had actually received the nickname the Hip Hop Mayor. He was rocking a diamond stud earring since he started, and he was pretty cool. Until he wasn't. Well, I mean, it was really interesting, um, the whole hip-hop mayor image, because in my limited research that I've done in the past week since we decided to do this episode, I always knew him as the hip-hop mayor, and he was. He he grew up on hip-hop. He was a big hip-hop fan. But he actually never really embraced, until he was elected, the hip-hop mayor image, because he thought of himself as a politician, and his campaign staff, or his, his, his you know, his team really saw that the hip-hop image played well with the young voters. And really, if, if, if you know anything about voting, you know a, a major portion, especially in inner cities, is getting the minority vote. Because minorities have less voter turnout than white America does. Because, you know, they feel marginalized, they feel like their vote doesn't matter. So if you get the, uh, uh, the voter turnout in minority groups, you, you will win. And in 2001, for Kwame's first election... The voter turnout between the ages of 18 and 40 in Detroit increased by 40%, which pretty much that alone won him the election. Because, you know, you know, he was going up, my bad, he was going up against a 68-year-old former police officer, so he was kind of like, his image, his branding at that point was the opposite of this guy. It's a very good campaign strategy. So, his first term started pretty rough. He was already in the news for different scandals, like using city funds to lease his family's Lincoln Navigator. Everybody's got to have a, Everybody's a, gotta have stretch, a stretch Navigator, navigator yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was taking trips to spas, going to expensive restaurants. So, mind you, this is taxpayer money that he was spending. So he racked up about $210,000 on his city cr- uh, credit card for pretty questionable expenses. Now, in the end, he really only had to pay back $9,000 of that, too. So... 
You might be thinking, all right, he was slimy, but what politician isn't? And, you know, usually I can agree with that. But bottles of Moe, $500 capital grill charges, those are not the reason he's featured on our podcast today. And technically, there are no rules saying he can't buy alcohol. And the meals he was purchasing, those were meant to schmooze public and private and investors. So he had to he had to impress them. So who knows? Also, he was misusing his power uh, as an administrator of the Detroit Water Department. So he was bypassing certain city council um, contracts. One, for example, is a over $1 million contract for a new radio system for the police department. So typical politician shit at this point. But... Where it starts to get a bit hairy, and this uh, is pretty famous, the famous 2002 Manoogian Mansion Party. Now, this was never officially proven, so I'm going to continue to call it the alleged Manoogian Mansion Party, but from what I've read about this story, and at this point, it's a lot, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I, be- I believe that it happened. Well, it's crazy because, as, as I think we'll figure out, this actually wasn't what ended up being the thing that got him in most of his legal trouble, but the Manoogian Mansion alleged party is definitely i would argue and i think most people that know would agree with me that this was the defining moment of of his public life Mm -hmm. and this is what started a lot of people to start attacking him as a politician and just his character in general so a little bit of background on the party basically kwame and some of his friends he hosted a party at the manoogian mansion which is the detroit city owned residence that the mayor lives in yep it's in the uh jefferson chalmers neighborhood which is on the east side South of Jefferson, right on the river. The mansion, I believe, is actually right on the river. Like, the mansion itself, when you go out the back, it's it's the river. So, it's supposed to be beautiful. Beautiful home and, yes, phenomenal location. So, so far, this party seems like a pretty sweet shindig, right? They had drinks, they had music, people, and strippers. Now, one stripper in particular, her name was Tamara Green. She went by Strawberry. So, now, according to various reports and a whole lot of, you know, weird differing timelines... Apparently, Tamara Green was touching up on on Kwame when his wife, Carlita Kilpatrick, came home and was not a fan of seeing that. So, she did what any jealous spouse would do, and she attacked Tamara with a wooden object. So, I'm going to continue this uh, mansion story in a bit as more information starts to unfold. But first, I'm going to fast forward to 2005, and this is where Kwame has had an interesting first term at this point. He was just finishing up. And he was not favored to win the election for his section, second term for some pretty obvious reasons, but through some miracle, he did. So the Lincoln-driving, Moe-sipping hip-hop mayor was back into his second term. I, I think that's a testament, you know, to the fact that you get the young voters out, the young minority voters out, they will vote for you. People didn't think he was going to win because after his first term, like you're saying, he was already entrenched in, in litigation yep. and, and allegations and... Just a bunch of a bunch of crap, and he still won because I'm sure, just like in 2001, the the 18 to 40 voters came out in mass for him. Mm-hmm. So, I'm noting that he's in his second term because this is where a lot of um, a lot of information started to come out and unfold for Kwame. But I'm going to go back a little bit. Um, I know this timeline's a bit confusing, still confusing to me, and at this point, I feel like an expert on this guy. So, <laughs> bear with me. So during, back during his first term, Kwame had enlisted some trustworthy friends to be on his EPU, or his, ex, his Executive protection, protection Unit. Now, this was assume, essentially a group of cops, other tough guys that were uh, Kwame's security detail. Now I'm going to introduce a couple of the characters from this unit. The first one is Harold Nelthrup. This guy was described as a steady Eddie servant on which the city of Detroit depended on. 
He was a good guy by all counts, so as you can imagine, he wasn't a great fit for Kwame's team. Then there was Lorenzo Jones. He was an old friend of Kwame's and basically was in charge of the unit. Not by name, but that was essentially his role. And he wasn't such a good guy, which means he was the perfect fit for Kwame's unit. Indeed. So, it's apparent that these guys were loyal to their capo, Kwame Kilpatrick. Who wrote this script? Chris Moltisanti? <laughs> a little Sopranos reference. Oof, model. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was made very clear through multiple uh, claims that Lorenzo made sure that this EPU team was there to protect Kwame. Now, this includes protecting his secrets. One in particular is his infidelity to his wife as well as doing some bad things and usually getting away with it. So examples of this would be some drunk driving incidents with uh, city vehicles and accidents involved, but you know those were usually covered up. No one reported those. And also um, making sure that they were able to get paid 50 to 60 hours of overtime every two weeks, every pay period. Oh, you know, just, just uh, some run-of-the-mill embezzlement. Yep, exactly. All fraudulent payments to themselves. So... An interesting and tragic story that may or may not involve uh, Kwame and his uh, executive protect- protection unit sticks out to me. It's that Tamara Green, or Strawberry, the woman who was actually hired to do some exotic dancing at the alleged Manugian Mansion party. Alleged. Yep. So it makes sense to me that after apparently being sent to the hospital by Kwame's wife, Carlita, that night, she was nothing but a liability to him and his team. And if you've ever seen The Sopranos, you can probably guess what happens to liabilities. Well, in any place like uh, where there's where they where they uh, cross that line from legality into illegality, like in Kwame's administration or mob shows or any crime shows, there, there's really no rules anymore. And as soon as someone uh, flips or does anything that could consider them a liability, it's pretty much all bets are off. Mm-hmm. So. On April 30th, 2003, she was murdered in her car on the east side of Detroit in a drive-by with no suspects. The bullets and the gun used to murder her were um, a Glock 40 caliber. Now, these are the same guns and bullets that were used by the Detroit Police Department at the time. Nothing ever came of this. Uh, The case was never closed. I'm sure it's random. (laughs) I'm sure it's random. And I really do not want to make any claims here, but it is worth noting. So... In 2008, there was an affidavit for three Detroit paramedics at the hospital that Tamara Green was allegedly sent to after being injured by uh, Carlita Kilpatrick. One paramedic claims that Carlita, or excuse me, that uh, Tamara was claiming that she was struck by a wooden object by Kwame's wife. Another paramedic claims that he saw Kwame and his EPU at the hospital. Now, the night that this all occurred is the same night as the mansion party. So, like I said, I don't want to make any claims. Who knows? But it's all part of a long, complicated story. The next thing I want to bring up, and what I consider kind of the start of Kwame's uh, downfall, is a civil lawsuit that was filed in 2003. Now, this ended up leading to a whistleblower trial in 2007 with two plaintiffs. Now, one of the plaintiffs I already mentioned, Harold Nelthrup, And the other plaintiff was Gary Brown. This was the former head of the Detroit Internal Affairs. Strap in for this one, Jameson. All right, I'm ready, man. The trial is where it kind of all began and started really stirring the pot. It's where the the downfall became a free fall. Exactly. So I'm going to start from the beginning. Um, So Nelthrop was not the biggest fan of a lot of these wrongdoings going on in Kwame's tight-knit unit. 
He was mostly concerned about the drunk driving accidents, the use, the use of uh, city police cars, not reporting accidents, as well as the overtime pay. But he was also aware of the Manugian uh, mansion party. Now, it's not quite sure if he was at the party or if he had heard about it afterwards, but he knew. So he decided to, that this should be known, and he hit up Gary Brown to let him know anonymously about all this shit going down under the mayor. As any responsible head of internal affairs would do, Brown did some probing. This resulted in a two-page memo that went through the chief of police and finally to the mayor's office. Now, this landed in the hands of Christine Beatty. This was Kwame's chief of staff and secret lover. Spoiler alert. Yep, stay tuned. So, she, she got a hand of this note, and very quickly after she read it, she had ended up firing Gary. Her basis for firing him was that she had received an anonymous single-paragraph memo claiming that Gary Brown's investigation was, was basically false and unauthorized. Well, that's interesting to me. Was there any evidence of that, of that note in, in, in like trials, or was it just uh, no, she, hearsay from Christine it, Beatty? It, from everything I've seen, it was basically hearsay. And actually, she ended up destroying and shredding that... Alleged note. <laughs> yes, that alleged note that she had received the day after receiving Gary Brown's memo. Well, what I'm wondering is, I wonder if that note was actually real, or if it ever happened, or if it was a note that Christine Beatty wrote maybe herself... Because I wonder the same thing. Because, you know, you can't just fire somebody without due cause for finding something in an investigation, but if it comes out that that investigation was unauthorized, then maybe you have some, some legal recourse. Exactly. And um, this seems relatively believable to me, especially since, um, along with all the wrongdoings of the EPU, what else this memo was going to spark was the investigation of the murder of Tamara Green. Lots of things that would make sense that that Kwame's administration would not want to be known or probed into any deeper than they have to be. Well, even without any any damning information here, which you could argue there already is some, uh, you can see that this administration was already starting to reel and backtrack and and try to cover things up. At, at best case scenario, this is just a little bit of a, of a shady administration. Absolutely. So I guess it's worth noting that Gary Brown wasn't necessarily fired. He was relieved of his duties as the head of the internal affairs. So when you're relieved with your, of your duties as an executive position, kind of demoted down to a frontline worker, it's essentially being fired. So not only was Brown fired in a clear attempt to keep this investigation suppressed, but also Kwame's media consultant released some of these claims that Nelthrop made. He released um, Gary Brown's memo. And this included Harold Nelthrop's name as the one who reported all of this. As you can imagine, this EPU was, would stop at nothing to protect the name of Kwame and his administration. Nelthrop was scared. It is, it's noted that when he discovered that his name was attached to this publicly released document, he was visibly shocked and terrified. At the same time, he was also relieved of his duties of being direct security detail to Kwame, and actually left work and felt that he could not return to work out of fear for his life and his safety. Well, that that is lends credence to what you said about how, like in mob movies, kind of similar to this, is that when somebody does something wrong or becomes a liability, all bets are off. If somebody that was that deeply entrenched in his administration was scared of the ramifications of being named in something in opposition to the administration... It, it speaks volumes about what the administration was willing to do and was capable of doing. Exactly. 
Now, another very important part of this mediation is the fact that Kwame and Christine, under oath, claimed that they were not having a sexual relationship. Now, this is a bad idea. In 2008, after requesting that under the Freedom of Information Act, the Free Press, shout out the Free Press. And uh, it's, the Free Press keeps coming up in each one of our podcasts. It's almost like they're, they're a beacon of free speech Incredible, in the city or something. It? So, yes, the Free Press released that they have over 14,000 texts between the two. And it could not be more obvious that they were that they were banging here. But Kwame had actually paid an eight point four million dollar settlement to keep these bad boys private. Clearly, they didn't stay private for that long. I'm going to show you a couple of these text messages here. I want you to read them and see what you think. Public information. I'm ready. Hit me. Hit me with some some text. I know there were there were there were a bunch of texts, but I want to hear some mm-hmm. some damning ones. So one little two liner here uh, is a text from Christine Beatty saying. And did you miss me sexually? <laughs> and Kilpatrick <laughs> responds, hell yeah, you couldn't tell. I want to see more. So that's, that's, that's one. And there's plenty of those. That almost sounds fake, dude. I know it's not, but I'm not. And did you miss me sexually? sexually? That sounds like someone who's definitely had sex Two th- before. <laughs> 2002 <laughs> texting is also just weird. <laughs> no emojis to kind of soften it. Did you enjoy doing the sex to me? <laughs> Now, another uh, pretty damning text from Beatty, not necessarily proving their sexual relationship, but one that says, I'm sorry that we are going through the mess because of a decision that we made to fire Gary Brown. I will make sure that the next decision is much more thought out, not regretting what was done at all, but thinking about how we can do things smarter. Where Kwame replied, it had to happen, though. I'm all the way with that. Dude, these text messages, that just shows you how... And this, first of all, I think it's worth noting that this was all from 2002 or, or, or around that time when texting was not what it was today. So the fact that a lot of these, a lot of this information was exchanged via text message is very interesting because, I mean, people weren't texting that much. And the fact that they had 14,000, that's a lot. And it's like they, they, they definitely did not realize that the Freedom of Information Act applied to text messages mm-hmm. because there are so many damning things, as I keep saying, in these text messages. And that one is... Is is about as close as you could get without actually saying it to like an admission of guilt. Like it's yep. like I'm sorry we killed those people. <laughs> you know, not that it, anybody. Yeah, it just shows like a clear lack of awareness that this data that they're sending back and forth is forever and ever and ever in existence. Right. I, I'm so sorry that we fired someone without due cause. <laughs> like this is not. This we is, should think about this more next time. <laughs> yeah. Right. We should think about our wrongdoings more 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 carefully next time. Yep. Oops. Yep. <laughs> so. As a result of this lawsuit, um, Harold Nelthrop and uh, Gary Brown, they had wanted to seek uh, $14 million in damage for the Whistleblower Protection Act. And this is because they were both essentially fired or relieved from their duties for sharing wrongdoing within an administration. And it was valid, and they ended up receiving a few million each. I think Gary Brown around 3.6, and Harold Nelthrop uh, just north of $2 million. So... Not quite the $14 million they were hoping for, but not a bad payday. So regarding those incriminating text messages about um, having a sexual relationship, Kwame got eight felonies from that little lie, and Christine got seven. So don't perjure yourself, people. If you're having sex, just talk about it, especially under oath. Come on. But not only did this reveal that they were boldly lying under oath, but there's also tons of uh, proof of constant scams and fraud that they were committing together. 
So for example, Kwame had a buddy, Bobby Ferguson. So he was a contractor and an old friend of Kwame's. And he had won a significant amount of contracts in, uh, for large Detroit construction and water contracts. So two major examples of those are renovations of Cobo Hall in 2002 and a contract for a storm and sewer system in the under-construction Ford Field. So big buildings, big contracts. Now, these two projects occurred in the same month, and guess who won them both? Bobby! Bobby. So, in fact, Ferguson, he incorporated a construction company called Excel Construction Services a few days after the initial board meeting was held to announce this Kobo project. So he basically heard about it. He said, oh, shit, I got to make a company. And then he got the job. So, so you're telling me that he did not have an LLC or anything prior to these contracts being announced, but as Nothing soon as they prior. were, he just scrambled and was like, yep. oh man, I gotta, I gotta file yep. an LLC, he build started, a company right he now. He started Excel when he learned it existed, and him and I believe it was Excel and uh, another company called White or something similar, they partnered together to get this Kobo project. Just fishy, fishy, fishy. Um, and then along with those 14,000 texts that were released, here's a few of them regarding um, between Bobby Ferguson and Christine Beatty as well. So I'm assuming a lot of these were taken from Christine Beatty's phone as well as yep. Kwame's because yep. this was an exchange okay, between uh, Bobby Ferguson and yep. Christine Beatty. So yeah, Kwame is not directly involved in this. And honestly, not really even Christine. It's only two texts sent from Bobby Ferguson, but they say a lot. So the first text sent on October 8th, 2002 says, Chris, Christine... I know you're busy, but I need Sam rates from the Detroit Building Authority. She didn't answer that one. So he sent another one, a little bit desperate. This was the next day, saying, Chris, I know you're real busy and probably don't think I need shit, but the contracts from Sam didn't help. I need a copy of Sam invoice for payments and proposals. Thank you. Who is Sam? It's a great question. Sam is Sam Chagua, another construction manager from Detroit, who had recently had contracts with the city of Detroit that according to a Free Press article, had conveniently begun dwindling after those texts from Bobby were sent. Now, it seems to me Bobby was trying to get the pricing info from Chagua's previous contracts with the city of Detroit so that he can really get an understanding of how the pricing would work and how he could win these bids. Now, overall, the Free Press claims that they've identified over $45 million worth of contracts that Bobby Ferguson were awarded um, after these text messages were sent. So, so basically, this guy... He had no idea how to run a business. He had no idea of anything about business. And then when he knew he was about to get this contract, if he did things right for these, for these big building projects, he was like, oh, man, I need to see these invoices from this other dude so I know how much to bid so I get the contract. That's what it sounds like to me. Ah, gotta love white-collar crime. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> so, Casey thought it ended there. It hasn't. So, at this point, Kwame was on parole for essentially being a liar, for he had perjured himself. And he decided it'd be a good idea to send it over to Windsor, Canada, only four months after his initial sentencing. Now, this purpose of this trip to Windsor was to ask the mayor, Eddie Francis, for a $75 million loan for Canada's right to the, to the uh, tunnel connecting Detroit and Windsor. At this point, Detroit was absolutely strapped for cash, and I have to believe that this has to do with Kwame's, um, Kwame's previous wrongdoings. And if you know anything about parole or probation... I know one thing, and that's you can't leave the state or the country, which he did that. And even if you try to attempt, you should probably let someone know. Like maybe your parole officer. Yep, and he didn't do that. 
And then later he, he got caught actually, I believe it was a journalist or a paparazzo who took a picture of him, um, while he was out there. And when he got caught, he tried to claim that it was at the request of Eddie Francis to have this meeting, but it turns out he was the one to request the meeting. So he went right to jail for the night for that one. Now, this is the first time that a Detroit mayor has ever been sent to jail while in office. Yeah, it's crazy to think that there, there was a time where Kwame was sitting in a correctional facility in the city he was currently the mayor of. <laughs> it's wild. So, looks like the courts were starting to see a pattern in his behavior, and they just could not let it slide anymore. So, he ended up being released on bail, but that same freaking day he was released... He had two more felony charges opened against him for assaulting a police officer. Now, this is just ridiculous. So the um, these two felony counts for assaulting a police officer, these actually occurred when he was at his sister's house. The police had come by with subpoenas for Bobby Ferguson to show up in court relating to the text message scandal. And Kwame was not happy about this and ended up shoving a police officer, one police officer, into the other. And if you've seen pictures of Kwame, you can imagine that i would not want to be shoved by that guy i don't want to get shoved by kwame nope so this guy just at this point he just can't stop he's absolutely spiraling this really must have been the final straw for old kwame's mayoral tenure because finally he pleaded guilty to these two felonies and he received four months in jail for that He was also required to uh, resign as the mayor and he was ordered to pay a million dollars in uh restitution back to the city how was uh how is he removed as mayor so there is an act called, I believe it's called the Recall Act, and this dates back to ancient times. And essentially what it is is if enough citizens uh, sign a petition saying that they believe the mayor should be removed from his position, the governor, who was Jennifer Granholm at the time, actually has the right to exercise removing him from office prior to his term ending. And they did just that. So this time he spent 99 days in jail. And apparently he was treated exactly the same as the other prisoners. So the judge, when sentencing, had said, I want to treat him the same, just like any other Joe Sixpack. And that he was. For those 99 days, he spent just about 23 hours a day in a cell. Doesn't sound fun. He was finally released and immediately went right to Texas, and he got there on a private jet. While still owing a million dollars to the city. How, how, do you, how do you pay for a private jet? It's okay. His mom paid for it. So, ah, uh, Mama right. Cheeks. Yep, Mama Cheeks paid for that one. So, interesting. I mean, not a good look. You know, kind of a ballsy play, but not a good look. To have a million dollar liability to the city you've pretty much destroyed, driven into bankruptcy almost, and taken private jets down to Texas. But he got down to Texas and started working a job... Um, for a subsidiary of CompuWare, the subsidiary was called Covicent, I believe is how it was pronounced. And the CEO of CompuWare is Pete Carmanos, a Michigan billionaire who, if you've grown up in the area, you've probably heard of him. He has charitable funds, and he's just a big name. Well, I mean, I've heard of all those, CompuWare, Covicent, Carmanos family. Yep. I mean, like you said uh, earlier, we had, our, we had our high school graduation at... CompuWare Arena and what was it Plymouth yep. or something yeah so so those all those names are are quite uh relevant in Detroit culture Absolutely So what's funny about this one is he was really living the life down there in Texas Thanks Pete Yep he was making $120,000 a year from Covicent and 
when it came to uh, dealing with his monthly pays for that million dollar restitution debt he had. Ah, the good old restitution mm-hmm. monthly payment. Him, I hate those. Yeah. <laughs> I hate the, those the so worst much. Bill I get. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, he was initially supposed to be able to pay 6000 a month, which had been reduced down to $3,000 a month, until him and his lawyer went to the court and said, Kwame cannot afford to pay any more than six dollars a month. Six hundred. Six. Point zero zero. Point zero zero. So, <laughs> according to uh, according to his lawyer, Kwame's monthly expenses were quite high. I mean, makes sense. They went toward his nine hundred dollar a month Escalade lease, his beautiful home worth almost three thousand dollars a month, and all of his other expenses total amounted to nine thousand nine hundred ninety four dollars a month. All he had left over was six to be able to pay for those restitution. To me, it sounds like he just didn't want to pay that debt. Interestingly, while talking about this, he had he had claimed that he had no clue anything about his wife's finances and claimed that he didn't even know if she had a job. I would love to hear, like, if, if they ever exist, a court exchange about that where they'd be like, what does your wife do for a living? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure. How about you ask her? <laughs> so, I mean, this is just ridiculous. But in the end, the court didn't buy it. And so in early 2010, he was ordered to pay about $300,000 within 90 days, within three months. Now, they had come up with this number because they had seen some gifts that were paid to his family, as well as a big old $240,000 loan that he had gotten from Pete Carmanos, and Roger Penske, along with other Michigan uh, businessmen. Ah, another Michigan name. Mm -hmm. So, guess what? What? He didn't pay at all. Of course. So, here we go again with another sentencing for good old Mayor Kilpatrick. This time, it was about 1.5 to 5-year prison sentencing, and he spent just over a year, ultimately, shuffling between both state and federal prisons, and he was actually required to pay all of his prison costs as well. So depending on the facility, this amounted to between eighty and one hundred thirty dollars a day, and that ended up being another fifteen thousand dollars of debt slapped right onto his balance sheet. Tough life this guy made for himself. Mm-hmm. While he was in prison, there was a case being opened against him, but for a couple months after he had uh, been released, he had a good life. You know, he had co-written a memoir. He had spent a few a few months going around to promote it, but. Then a lawsuit came against him. This is the this is the big kahuna. This is the big one. This is the <laughs> one that ultimately left him into prison with no parole until 2037. While he was serving uh, his time for failing to pay his restitution, the big dog started working on an indictment for Kwame, his dad, and some of his close friends, who were all a part of some major corruption. In mid-December of 2010, attorney Barbara McQuaid, uh, so according to an MLive article, she had decided to put a stop to Detroit's culture of corruption. And how did she do this? By announcing an 89-page RICO indictment with 38 counts to its name. And to be honest with you, the only thing I know about RICO before I read this was that Tony Soprano and you know this, this thing of his, <laughs> they all spent their entire lives dodging RICO uh, indictments. I am not surprised at all that they got hit with the RICO. So, so from my understanding, RICO is it's the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. It's not very old uh, of a, of a statute, or, or I don't know what it is, but it's not very old. It was originally created to stop organized crime in America once the mafia really took hold of a lot of big cities, and 
it's pretty much the the reason that the historians have attributed to the fall of the mob. I mean, the mob is still a thing today, but it's definitely not what it was in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And it's mostly because of RICO, which was basically instituted to get people for racketeering or tax evasion or basically crimes related to organized crime that's not actually the like killing people mm-hmm. or 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 finagling union contracts or something like that and it's affected a lot it originally was a good intent right to stop organized crime mobs but it's become it's become something of of a monster of its own because i as as a hip-hop fan myself I, i a lot of rappers and and people like that get really negatively influenced by the rico act in fact uh one of my favorite rappers right now draco the ruler from la was enthralled in this in this huge case where he was charged with conspiracy to commit murder, which was eventually dropped because there was insufficient evidence and the person he was allegedly trying to murder came out and announced that he wasn't trying to murder him, all this stuff, and the LAPD ended up only charging him with uh, felonious um, possession of a weapon, but they tagged onto it the fact that they decided that him and his rap group of his friends, brother, and cousins, uh, the Stink Team, they said that they were a gang. Mm-hmm. They said they were a gang, and because they were a gang, it brought the RICO Act into it, yeah. which brought like a two-year sentence into like a 25-to-life sentence. So the RICO Act has become something of a, of a hugely debated topic amongst um, legal experts and politicians because while it's used to get people that it's hard to get, it's also being abused because people will get RICO charges and get way more years than than they originally maybe deserved, which is kind of what happened in this case, right? Yep. So, yeah, this really is kind of a, a twofold issue when we look at it that way. Because on one end, seeing the history of uh, of Kwame and his and his you know his his gang of cronies, um, yeah, there there was organized crime, and maybe a RICO indictment here is is justified. But then we also think like. You're right. I mean, this RICO Act is used for the purpose of whether it's, you know, maybe getting more information, getting more rights during the during the proceedings or providing a way stronger sentence because right. it's a RICO and, case. And an easier case to 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 convict somebody yep. with. And and that's why I think it's it's specifically for this case such a big deal because I I don't know for a fact. I ha- I guess I haven't done quite my due diligence, but I can't think of in my head or or know of another case involving politicians where the RICO Act was was used. Because, I mean, if you are really going to be a glass-half-empty type person, and I'm not saying you're wrong by this, but I'm saying you could make a case that an extreme amount of, of political power is organized crime, right? Yep. I mean, I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but there is a valid argument to be made that a lot of people misuse their power. You look at the administration we have now or in, in, in office for president or – just a lot of things in the past, like a lot of mayors from Chicago in the past that the past two decades, like Rahm Emanuel or, or Rod Blagojevich or whatever, that that have gotten in trouble for this. And the RICO Act, I don't think, has been used against them because the RICO Act is it, it's hefty. It carries a lot of years, so it's really interesting to me that they used a RICO Act on a corrupt political administration because by by its its Without context, the definition of the RICO Act perfectly applies to the Kwame Kilpatrick administration, yep. 100%. But they don't really use RICO Acts on corrupt political administrations. So I think that's it's uh, it's very, very interesting that they yep. use the RICO Act against Kwame. I agree. But when you stand back and look at that, 
to see a, you know a politician being indicted under Rico is just crazy. Who knows? Anyway, so McQuaid said that she wanted to send a message to those who steal from taxpayers, and she sure did. This really was a big one. So this case included using over 300,000 text messages as evidence and calling in over 500 witnesses. So if you think 14,000 text messages is a lot, now we have 300,000 in the play. I always want to imagine, like, I, I know the, the, the Freedom of Information Act is also a hotly debated topic, and, and we just passed a, a, a bill in Michigan that the uh, law enforcement needs a warrant to be able to look through your electronic messages, which I think is a good thing. But in this case, it was used correctly. Yep. It was used correctly in this case. But... Imagine being like that legal team that has to read through like hundreds of thousands of text messages mm-hmm. between Kwame and his mistress, Weirdly Kwame personal. and his staff. Like, digging yeah, into this guy's yeah, I'd soul. feel so dirty. Just dirty, yes. But in the end, he finally ended up pleading guilty. So one thing to note is that through all of the allegations and court cases that I've just talked about up until now, he had been staunchly and very strongly against all of them. He has claimed that he is innocent. There are records of him rolling his eyes and scoffing and laughing during some of these cases because he was so truly against it, saying that he was completely innocent. His dad right along with him. So we see a different side of Kwame now. He ended up pleading guilty and he was sentenced to 28 years in prison. So According to a New York Times article here, Kwame apologized for putting the people of his city through a corruption scandal so vast that prosecutors say it actually helped accelerate Detroit's march toward bankruptcy. It was about time he was knocked off of his horse. It was about time that it was proven to him that he is not above the law and his little unit of friends cannot protect him from everything. Kwame was charged on 24 counts of racketeering, bribery, mail-and-wire fraud, extortion, and tax crimes. So one of the major drivers of the sentencing was what I was talking about earlier with Bobby Ferguson, which amounted to $45 million in contracts awarded to him that may or may not have gone to other contractors with higher quality work and better bids, which probably in the end has wasted taxpayers millions of dollars itself. Bobby himself, he also got a smooth 21-year sentencing himself for uh, what they were considered extortion charges. And Kwame's dad didn't get away from this either. So remember I mentioned his consulting firm, Maestro Associates. I do. I made a mental note. Yep. It turned out the only reason that that was really formed in the first place was similar to Bobby to use his, his son's influence to get money. And he got 15 months for that. So nothing even close to what Kwame and Bobby had gotten, but... Still, everyone involved was guilty in one way or another. Well, you could make an argument that maybe this is a strong word to use, but Bobby Ferguson was almost like a victim. I mean, he 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 reaped what he sowed, mm-hmm. but uh, he seemed like this dude that was just trying to get on Kwame's good side. Kwame gets to a position of power, awards him some contracts, and all is good in Detroit, you know, mm-hmm. until uh, you get 21 years in prison. Yep, so. exactly. Because the history of Bobby, Bobby Ferguson himself is pretty interesting. So he had been a friend of Kwame's all the way since he was, before he was a mayor, so late 90s, when he was serving with the uh, House of Representatives. Bobby Ferguson was there, I think he was just like a local business owner, but from the beginning, um, he had provided free of charge help to transport elderly people. 
he had donated machinery and equipment to uh, to the state. And he has various counts of just... I don't know if it's just he was a nice guy turned evil. I don't know if he was playing the long game. He saw this potential in Kwame Kilpatrick to become, you know, a two-term mayor, and he wanted to be on the right side of this guy. I don't know if he saw a tendency in Kwame to maybe, you know, kind of succumb to corruption in the first place. But this guy had been around for a long time, and for a while he was he was doing pretty well for himself. So to call him a victim, I it is an interesting way to put it, and I, I see where you're coming from. I would say less a victim and more just, you know, someone who is very quick to take advantage of the opportunities that were presented right in front right, of him. Right, right. He was slimy maybe, but I, slimy. I, okay, I guess I guess uh victim isn't the right way to put it, but I think he got himself um deeply embedded in something that he did not 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 expect Absolutely. to be of the scale in which it was. Like I would not be surprised if Bobby Ferguson had no idea about all these other things going on. Mm-hmm. He was just basically okay. So here, he's not a victim. He is just immense collateral damage. Yes, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. So, and I guess a little bit of a silver lining for Bobby was that during these uh, RICO indictments, he ended up paying for all of his own legal defense. Now, this cannot be said for uh, Kwame or his dad. So a WXYZ Detroit article uh, says that experts assume that both Kwame and his dad racked up about $203,000 each in lawyer fees, plus there was some six-figure costs for hiring expert witnesses. And then Click on Detroit actually says that the legal fees for Kwame overall amounted to $813,000, and his dad's were around $350,000. So they spent over a million dollars in taxpayer money mm-hmm. trying to... Yep. Claim their innocence. Yep. Those dollars got billed right to the taxpayers. You love to see it. Yep. So that is the story of Kwame Kilpatrick. He's currently serving time, and he's not free to leave until 2037. There have been a few close calls in recent history, one of those being um, Kwame Kilpatrick's, well, actually, Pete Carmanos's request to Donald Trump to grant Kwame Kilpatrick clemency. It all comes full circle. Yep. And now what's interesting about this is that this was really strongly considered by Trump, apparently, for a while. And also uh, Pete Carmanos, who is very, very adamant behind Kwame that he had committed no crimes. Pete Carmanos says things like, Kwame did nothing wrong. So that guy's credibility to me is kind of out the window. (laughs) And and we can see it kind of makes sense that Donald Trump may have been uh, considering this because... This probably would have helped him, you know, secure some more black votes, especially in in Detroit. And we know Wayne County has a pretty strong influence on uh, presidential elections. Well, they they pretty much said that uh, uh, Biden won won Michigan because of Wayne County, and 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 if Trump pardons Kwame, he's not going to win. He wasn't going to win Wayne County, but instead of getting five percent of the vote, he might have gotten eleven yep. percent or yep. something like that. I mean, because if you look at the 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 legacy of Kwame with with we should talk about the legacy, I think, because as much as you said the Joseph Campo story from last episode was nuanced, Max, this is even more nuanced because absolutely because you have to look at it through a specific lens. Because if you look at at, at the context of the situation, it's it, there's just so much to unpack. If you unpack, like if you look at the Trump administration, which I feel like you could draw a lot of parallels to this Kwame administration, yep. right? Because the way that Kwame positioned himself as the hip-hop mayor and the the champion of the marginalized in the city while still doing wrong by them 
is pretty much exactly what Trump has been doing to the the lower class white population in America who are voting for him. So there are some parallels to be drawn. And one member of the Trump administration and a longtime Republican political consultant, Paul Manafort, was sentenced and convicted of tax fraud and conspiracy to commit treason against the United States and was sentenced to seven and a half years. That's a pretty major crime for... That, uh, uh, sentencing like yeah that. and and the thing is that seven and a half years was looked at amongst the media by unprecedented for uh, for someone of such high political standing and that seven and a half years is like one 25 percent one fourth of what Kwame got and not only that he was released because of covid concerns after a year and you said that Kwame may have been but wasn't right he wasn't and he has many pre-existing health conditions prior to, you know, the COVID pandemic. He would have been a great candidate for early release, but nope. So I think that's while you look at Kwame as somebody who did, who robbed Detroit blind and, and, and did wrong by the people he was elected to serve. You also look at the fact that he's become somewhat of a Robin Hood in, in that community because he was railroaded. He really was railroaded by the American criminal justice system. And that's not to say that he shouldn't have gotten in trouble because he should have. He did a lot of illegal things. He did a lot of terrible things. He drove Detroit further into bankruptcy, a city that I and many others love dearly. Mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, would this have happened if Paul Manafort was Michigan, yep. was Detroit's mayor? No, obviously it would not have. And, and that's why he's become somewhat, somewhat of a beacon or, or, or an image to this community that, that when you go on Twitter and you see he may be released, you see so many free Kwame posts from mm-hmm. these people that he, he totally wronged because he is a microcosm of what is wrong with the American criminal justice system. So while he did so, so much wrong to his own city, at the same time, they threw the book at him, man. Mm-hmm. They threw the book. He's going to be in prison probably unless some like hardcore Republican decides to, to pardon him because it'll help their voter base. He's literally going to be in prison until he's an an, an old mm-hmm. man, 2037. That's that's still 17 years from now, mm-hmm. dude. That's so long just for I mean not saying that what he did wasn't bad, but how can you say Paul Manafort is walking a free man for for treasonous activities against his own country while Kwame stole millions of dollars from a city and, and it's going to basically rot in prison. And I think that's why it's such a nuanced discussion, because you have to understand the perspective in which people are looking at this situation. Exactly. And these people are looking at this situation in the way that Kwame, they, they relate to him. You know, he was a young mayor. He, he was vibrant, charismatic. That was just absolutely squashed by the criminal justice system with RICO charges, unprecedented charges, probably because he was black and flamboyant. And, and, and part of... What people didn't like about him when he was elected was the glitz and the glam and the earring and the Lincoln Navigator, which inherent there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I mean, eventually it became a self-fulfilling prophecy where he stole a bunch of money and and did a bunch of heinous things. Mm-hmm. But that's it's not because of the glitz and the glam. It's because of the power that everybody gets chewed up yep. by and spit out in this American capitalistic system. It's it's not the fact that he was a a, a, a well off proud young black man you know and and that's why it's such a tragic like Mm -hmm. shakespearean-esque story because he made his own bed but at the same time he should not have been i mean like if if i'm being honest i think that he should have gotten a lot of time but so should have paul manafort but in 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 reality that's not going to happen so in my opinion we kwame should be walking right now in my opinion a free man in this system we live in right now because he has served his time he's lost everything he has he has paid 
as much as one can pay, <laughs> mm-hmm. he has paid not for, actual dollars because he still does owe about eleven point nine. Right, right, okay, <laughs> right. And I'm not trying to like necessarily stick up for for yep. something, someone that did something so bad. But it is, it is. I think the main, my personal main takeaway from this story is there are a lot of politicians who have done shit like this. There is not a lot that have gotten sentenced to several decades in Americans' prison, America's prison system for doing this. I completely agree. I think that was a fantastic analysis. And I think that's what's, uh, what's so exciting to me about the, you know, kind of the, the platform that we decided to base this podcast on, of looking at people who have done objectively bad things, but breaking their actions down and applying them to the context of the time in which they occurred. Because we looked at Joseph Campo, and although we did not excuse any of his wrongdoings, we did have to take into account the fact that he was growing up, or and he was living in the 1800s, where things were different. And now, kind of on a similar but very different note, we're looking at the story of Kwame Kilpatrick, who was sentenced in the early 2010s and received harsh, harsh, harsh uh, sentencing. And then we compare that to other people who have been you know, sentenced within, within 10 years of that. And they're receiving, you know, much lesser sentences. And we, we can, I think the important part is that while we do not excuse the wrongdoings of any of the people we talk about, we pick it apart enough to where we can really think about where, you know, where some of these things have gone wrong and not necessarily just focusing on the bad actions because the human life, you know, the, the you know, someone, someone's life in relation to society is not binary. Kwame Kilpatrick is not bad or good, right? He did bad things. He took advantage of everyone and everything. But there's also points where the the severity of his treatment is likely unjust. And there's points where he, we we have to appreciate like you've said, the the nuance in in the lives and the incredible stories of some of these people who have made such an impact on Detroit and focus on the way deeper issues in the reasonings behind just what was done. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about the story itself because we focus on terrible things and corruption and the loss in, in, you know, the theft of millions of dollars. But then we look at it and say, Hey, let's compare this to the sentencing of someone who was convicted for treason conspiracy to commit treason and we think all right you know he was a bad guy but maybe he should have been treated a little bit more fairly in the context of of you know comparable and even more severe cases such as paul manafort right i mean you just have to contextualize everything and 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 i never went into this podcast aiming to to excuse Kwame Kilpatrick of all the... All <laughs> Probably the, the last thing I expected right, to do. Right, of all the, all the shit are. he's done. But here we are because, like, so you asked me this before, but I want to ask you now that we're recording the podcast, like, given this context and, and, and how we look at him and how different communities look at Kwame Kilpatrick and how his story has even aged in the, in the recent decade, what do you think the overall legacy of, of at least this administration or Kwame himself is going to be? So I think the legacy that is not the most important part first is the effects he's had on the city of Detroit, whether that's driving us into bankruptcy or causing you know severe lags in, in um, growth. I think that those are byproducts of a bad man. But what I think the greatest legacy is, is the, the conversation struck and the, and the importance of focusing on through which lens are we looking at the story? 
Because if you and I look at the story through the lens of, honestly, you know, of privilege, of of being of being you know white men, white suburban hetero yes, men, exactly from, from the suburbs, exactly. you know, exactly. We think of this as oh, bad man did bad thing, go to jail, right? But when we look at this lens through a lot of these people who are you know repping free Kwame shirts and tweeting and and expecting and and truly believing that he he didn't get the sentencing he deserved i i think that that is it's necessary that that is also appreciated because yeah i i really i don't think that you know anyone in their right mind could look at Kwame Kilpatrick's story and say he does not deserve a sentencing but the issue is the severity of his sentencing and kind of what that implies as a greater, you know, a greater societal issue. And that could be as, you know, as direct as racial discrimination within the justice system, right? It could be, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more outwardly focused on like implicit bias in the, in the, in the, um, U S justice in the justice system, regardless what, uh, what you and I can do and what we can try to focus on is to look at these stories, understand the nuance, and then contextualize. Because I think there's no better way to understand, you know, the, the impact and the purpose behind something than, than being able to contextualize it. And right now what we can do is one comparison that you've made is Paul Manafort. And we look at, you know, I don't want to say comparable crimes because, you know, the, you know, the scale is different to, to commit treason. The scale is different. You know, it was, a, it was a federal versus a state level. It was, it was this versus that, whatever, either way, what you and I are doing and what's really important about this is that we're contextualizing issues in order to figure out where the deepest issue lies. And I think that all of these people that we will discuss in the future and who we've had discussed in the past their um you know their legacy goes far beyond what they've done i think i mentioned last time separating the individual from the actions and understanding the motivation behind not only what they have done but why their legacy is what it is i think that was extremely well said i i i i love the part about you did say last podcast the is separating individual from the actions and i don't think that applies any more to anybody in this world than it does Kwame Kilpatrick mm-hmm. because you can separate the fact that Kwame is not a very good dude to the fact that his legacy is not him. His legacy is not who he is mm-hmm. as a person. His legacy is his administration and how that's shaped the way we look at, at positions of power, at least in this area, and how we look at, at people that do wrong and how they're treated. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that I couldn't have said it better myself. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. And I, I really hope, I think one of the, the goals that I didn't necessarily expect when we decided to create this podcast, but what I now truly hope comes out of this, is that what we can do is focus on allowing big topics of what we would assume as bad people and bad actions to be really broken down and considered way more deeply. And I think the best way to do that is through discussion like this. They're really picking through the history and understanding why things have happened. So that's that's my goal for what our listeners can gain and what I think you and I can gain. Yeah, 100%, man. And and I agree. I, I kind of went into this podcast being like, yeah, dude, it'd be sweet to do Let's some... talk about people who did bad shit. It's pretty sweet. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> and, you know, I want to do some people that did some good shit too. But like at the same time, it's really... I think I really want to shed light on this because I know there are a lot of people out there, at least in my circles, that are that are that are educated, intelligent, that 
were in the same position as I was when I was like 10 years old, you know, 15 years old. I was like, oh yeah, this guy sucks. Yep. You know, and he, and he does, I'm not saying that he doesn't, yep. but like you, you gotta have this context. You have to people. There are so many examples, especially now where people try to take the context out of situations. And that's just so unfair to the subject of said situations. Mm-hmm. You know, context is, exactly. is, is arguably the most important thing to any, any, any event or, yep. or, or story. Yep. I agree. I think the biggest thing is to kind of break down the name, break down that initial thought of what we hear think when we hear a name like Kwame Kilpatrick, and focus on what led to the legacy, and if it's you know if it's deserved, and where there may or may not be an issue that lies within the legacy. So, I think it's a good place to end. I uh, I think this is a fantastic discussion. I think it was too. Thanks, thanks for writing this episode. It was it was highly informative. Yes, I was very happy to. I'm very excited about this opportunity. So, thank you all. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Lost Souls of Detroit. Please follow us on social media. Our Instagram is Lost Souls of Detroit, and our Twitter is Souls Detroit. Now, don't forget to subscribe to us on your preferred streaming platform. And if you are using Apple Podcasts, please rate us five stars. As a growing podcast, this helps us tremendously and will allow us to keep it going. Don't be afraid to hit us up on social media with requests on a soul you want us to discuss or a spirit you recommend that we drink. Thank you.